Chapter Thirteen of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood. The Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirteen. Both at their best. Miss Twinkleton's establishment was about to undergo a serene hush. The Christmas recess was at hand. What had once, and at no remote period, been called, even by the erudite Miss Twinkleton herself, the half, but what was now called, as being more elegant and more strictly collegiate, the term, would expire to-morrow. A noticeable relaxation of discipline had, for some days, pervaded the nun's house. Club suppers had occurred in the bedrooms, and a dressed tongue had been carved with a pair of scissors, and handed round with the curling-tongs. Portions of marmalade had likewise been distributed on a service of plates constructed of curl-paper, and cowslip wine had been quaffed from the small squat measuring-glass, on which little Ricketts, a junior of weakly constitution, took her steel-drops daily. The housemaids had been bribed with various fragments of ribband, and sundry pairs of shoes more or less down at heel, to make no mention of crumbs in the beds. The airiest costumes had been worn on these festive occasions, and the daring Miss Ferdinand had even surprised the company with a sprightly solo on the comb-and-curl-paper, until suffocated in her own pillow by two flowing-haired executioners. Nor were these the only tokens of dispersal. Boxes appeared in the bedrooms, where they were capital at other times, and a surprising amount of packing took place, out of all proportion to the amount packed. Largesse, in the form of odds and ends of cold cream and pomatum, and also of hairpins, was freely distributed among the attendants. On charges of inviolable secrecy, confidences were interchanged respecting golden youth of England expected to call at home on the first opportunity. Miss Giggles, deficient in sentiment, did indeed profess that she, for her part, acknowledged such homage by making faces at the golden youth. But this young lady was outvoted by an immense majority. On the last night before a recess, it was always expressly made a point of honour that nobody should go to sleep, and that ghosts should be encouraged by all possible means. This compact invariably broke down, and all the young ladies went to sleep very soon, and got up very early. The concluding ceremony came off at twelve o'clock on the day of departure, when Miss Twinkleton, supported by Mrs. Tisher, held a drawing-room in her own apartment, the globes already covered with brown holland, where glasses of white wine and plates of cut pound-cake were discovered on the table. Miss Twinkleton then said, Ladies, another revolving year has brought us round to that festive period, 
at which the first feelings of our nature, bounded in our... Miss Twinkleton was annually going to say bosoms, but annually stopped on the brink of that expression and substituted... Hearts! Our hearts! <clears throat> Again a revolving year, ladies, has brought us to a pause in our studies. Let us hope our greatly advanced studies, and, like the mariner in his bark, the warrior in his tent, the captive in his dungeon, and the traveller in his various conveyances, we yearned for home. Did we say on such an occasion, in the opening words of Mr. Addison's impressive tragedy, the dawn is overcast, the morning lowers, and heavily in clouds brings on the day, the great, the important day? Not so. From horizon to zenith, all was couleur de rosé, for all was redolent of our relations and friends. May we find them prospering as we expected? Might they find us prospering, as they expected? Ladies, we would now, with our love to one another, wish one another good-bye and happiness until we meet again, and when the time should come for our resumption of those pursuits which— here a general depression set in all round— pursuits which— pursuits which then let us ever remember what was said by the spartan general in words too trite for repetition at the battle it were superfluous to specify the handmaidens of the establishment in their best caps then handed the trays and the young ladies sipped and crumbled and the bespoken coaches began to choke the street then leave-taking was not long about, and Miss Twinkleton, in saluting each young lady's cheek, confided to her an exceedingly neat letter addressed to her next friend at law, with Miss Twinkleton's best compliments, in the corner. The missive she handed, with an air as if it had not the least connection with the bill, but were something in the nature of a delicate and joyful surprise. So many times had Rosa seen such dispersals, and so very little did she know of any other home, that she was content to remain where she was, and was even better contented than ever before, having her latest friend with her. And yet her latest friendship had a blank place in it, of which she could not fail to be sensible. Helena Landless, having been a party to her brother's revelation about Rosa, and having entered into that compact of silence with Mr. Chris Sparkle, shrank from any allusion to Edwin Drood's name. Why she so avoided it was mysterious to Rosa, but she perfectly perceived the fact. But for the fact she might have relieved her own little perplexed heart of some of its doubts and hesitations by taking Helena into her confidence. As it was, she had no such vent. She could only ponder on her own difficulties, 
and wonder more and more why this avoidance of Edwin's name should last, now that she knew, for so much Helena had told her, that a good understanding was to be re-established between the two young men when Edwin came down. It would have made a pretty picture, so many pretty girls kissing Rosa in the cold porch of the nun's house, and that sunny little creature peeping out of it, unconscious of sly faces carved on spout and gable peeping at her, and waving farewells to the departing coaches, as if she represented the spirit of rosy youth abiding in the place to keep it bright and warm in its desertion. The horse High Street became musical with the cry in various silvery voices, "'Good-bye, Rosebud, darling!' And the effigy of Mr. Saps's father over the opposite doorway seemed to say to mankind, "'Gentlemen, favour me with your attention to this charming little last lot left behind, and bid with a spirit worthy of the occasion.' Then the staid street so unwantonly sparkling, youthful and fresh for a few rippling moments, ran dry, and Cloisterham was itself again. If Rosebud in her bower now waited Edwin Drood's coming with an uneasy heart, Edwin for his part was uneasy too, with far less force of purpose in his composition than the childish beauty, crowned by acclamation Fairy Queen, of Miss Twinkleton's establishment, he had a conscience, and Mr. Grugius had pricked it. That gentleman's steady convictions of what was right and what was wrong in such a case as his were neither to be frowned aside nor laughed aside. They would not be moved. But for the dinner in Staple Inn, and but for the ring he carried in the breastcoat of his pocket, he would have drifted into their wedding-day without another pause for real thought, loosely trusting that all would go well left alone. But that serious, putting him on his truth to the living and the dead, had brought him to a check. He must either give the ring to Rosa, or he must take it back. Once put into this narrowed way of action, it was curious that he began to consider Rosa's claims upon him more unselfishly than he had ever considered them before, and began to be less sure of himself than he had ever been in his easy-going days. "'I will be guided by what she says, and by how we get on,' was his decision, walking from the gatehouse to the nun's house. "'Whatever comes of it, I will bear his words in mind, and try to be true to the living and the dead. Rosa was dressed for walking. She expected him. It was a bright, frosty day, and Miss Twinkleton had already graciously sanctioned fresh air. Thus they got out together before it became necessary for either Miss Twinkleton or the deputy high priest, Mrs. Tisher, to lay even so much as one of those usual offerings on the shrine of propriety. "'My dear Eddie,' said Rosa, when they had turned out of the high street, and had got among the quiet walks in the neighbourhood of the cathedral and the river, "'I want to say something very serious to you. I have been thinking about it for a long, long time.' "'I want to be serious with you too, Rosa dear. 
I mean to be serious and earnest. Thank you, Eddy, and you will not think me unkind, because I begin, will you? You will not think I speak for myself only, because I speak first? That would not be generous, would it? And I know you are generous. He said, I hope I am not ungenerous to you, Rosa. He called her pussy no more, never again. And there is no fear, pursued Rosa, of our quarrelling, is there? Because, Eddy, clasping her hand on his arm, we have so much reason to be very lenient to each other. We will be, Rosa. That's a dear good boy. Eddy, let us be courageous. Let us change to brother and sister from this day forth. Never be husband and wife? Never. Neither spoke again for a little while. But after that pause he said with some effort, Of course I know that this has been in both our minds, Rosa, and of course... I am in honour bound to confess freely that it does not originate with you. No, nor with you, dear, she returned with pathetic earnestness, that sprung up between us. You are not truly happy in our engagement, and I am not truly happy in it. Oh, I am so sorry, so sorry. And there she broke into tears. I am deeply sorry too, Rosa, deeply sorry for you. And I for you, poor boy, and I for you. This pure young feeling, this gentle and forbearing feeling of each toward the other, brought with it its reward in a softening light that seemed to shine on their position. The relations between them did not look wilful or capricious or a failure in such a light. They became elevated into something more self-denying, honourable, affectionate, and true. "'If we knew yesterday,' said Rosa, as she dried her eyes, "'and we did know yesterday, and on many, many yesterdays, "'that we were far from right together in those relations "'which were not of our own choosing, "'what better could we do to-day?' than change them. It is natural that we should be sorry, and you see how sorry we both are, but how much better to be sorry now than then. When, Rosa? When it would be too late, and then we should be angry besides. Another silence fell upon them. And you know, said Rosa innocently. You couldn't like me then, and you can always like me now, for I shall not be a drag upon you, or a worry to you. And I can always like you now, and your sister will not tease or trifle with you. I often did it when I was not your sister, and I beg your pardon for it. Don't let us come to that, Rosa, or I shall want more pardoning than I like to think of. No, indeed, Eddy, you are too hard, my generous boy, upon yourself. 
Let us sit down, brother, on these ruins, and let me tell you how it was with us. I think I know, for I have considered about it very much since you were here last time. You liked me, didn't you? You thought I was a nice little thing? Everybody thinks that, Rosa. Do they? She knitted her brow musingly for a moment, and then flashed out with the bright little induction. Well, but say they do. Surely it was not enough that you should think of me only as other people did now, was it? The point was not to be got over. It was not enough. And that is just what I meant. This is just how it was with us, said Rosa. You liked me very well, and you had grown used to me, and had grown used to the idea of our being married. You accepted the situation as an inevitable kind of thing, didn't you? It was to be, you thought, and why discuss or dispute it? It was new and strange to him to have himself presented to himself so clearly, in a glass of her holding up. He had always patronised her, in his superiority to her share of woman's wit. Was that but another instance of something radically amiss in the terms on which they had been gliding towards a lifelong bondage? And this, that I say of you, is true of me as well, Eddie. Unless it was, I might not be bold enough to say it. Only the difference between us was that, by little and little there crept into my mind a habit of thinking about it, instead of dismissing it. My life is not so busy as yours, you see, and I have not so many things to think of. So I thought about it very much, and I cried about it very much too, though, though that was not your fault, poor boy, when all at once my guardian came down to prepare for my leaving the nun's house. I tried to hint to him that I was not quite settled in my mind, but I hesitated and failed, and he didn't understand me. But he is a good, good man and he put before me so kindly and yet so strongly how seriously we ought to consider in our circumstances that I resolved to speak to you the next moment we were alone and grave. And if I seem to come to it easily just now, because I came to it all at once, don't think it was so really, Eddie, for, oh, it was very, very hard, and Oh, I am very, very sorry. Her full heart broke into tears again. He put his arm around her waist, and they walked by the riverside together. Your guardian has spoken to me too, Rosa dear. I saw him before I left London. His right hand was in his breast, seeking the ring, but he checked it as he thought, if I am to take it back, why should I tell her of it? And that made you more serious about it, didn't it, Eddie? And if I had not spoken to you as I have, you would have spoken to me? 
I hope you can tell me so. I don't like it to be all my doing, though it is so much better for us. Yes, I should have spoken. I should have put everything before you. I came intending to do it. But I never could have spoken to you as you have spoken to me, Rosa. Don't say you meant so coldly or unkindly, Eddie, please, if you can help it. I mean so sensibly and delicately, so wisely and affectionately. That's my dear brother. She kissed his hand in a little rapture. The dear girls will be dreadfully disappointed, added Rosa, laughing, with the dewdrops glistening in her bright eyes. They have looked forward to it so, poor pets. Ah, but I fear it will be a worse disappointment to Jack, said Edwin Drood with a start. I never thought of Jack. Her swift and intent look at him, as he said the words, could no more be recalled than a flash of lightning can but it appeared as though she would have instantly recalled it if she could, for she looked down, confused, and breathed quickly. "'You don't doubt it being a blow to Jack, Rosa?' She merely replied, and that evasively and hurriedly. Why should she? She had not thought about it. He seemed to her to have so little to do with it. "'My dear child!' "'Can you suppose that any one so wrapped up in another, Mrs. Tope's expression, not mine, as Jack is in me, could fail to be struck all of a heap by such a sudden and complete change in my life? I say sudden, because it will be sudden to him, you know.' She nodded twice or thrice, and her lips parted as if she would have assented, but she uttered no sound and her breathing was no slower. "'How shall I tell Jack?' said Edwin, ruminating. If he had been less occupied with the thought, he might have seen her singular emotion. "'I never thought of Jack. It must be broken to him before the town crier knows it. I dine with the dear fellow to-morrow and next day, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, but it would never do to spoil his feast days. He always worries about me, and Modley Codley's in the merest trifles. The news is sure to overset him. How on earth shall this be broken to Jack? He must be told, I suppose, said Rosa. My dear Rosa, who ought to be in our confidence, if not Jack? My guardian promised to come down. If I should write and ask him, I am going to do so. Would you like to leave it to him? A bright idea, cried Edwin. The other trustee, nothing more natural. He comes down, he goes to Jack, he relates what we have agreed upon, and he states our case better than we could. He has already spoken feelingly to me, and he'll put the whole thing feelingly to Jack. That's it. I am not a coward, Rosa, but to tell you a secret, I am a little afraid of Jack. No, no, you are not afraid of him, cried Rosa, turning white and clasping her hands. Why, Sister Rosa, Sister Rosa, what do you see from the turret? 
said Edward, rallying her. My dear girl! You frightened me, most unintentionally, but I am as sorry as if I had meant to do it. Could you possibly suppose for a moment, from any loose way of speaking of mine, that I was literally afraid of the dear fond fellow? What I mean is, that he is subject to a kind of paroxysm or fit. I saw him in it once, and I don't know but that so great a surprise coming upon him direct from me, whom he is so wrapped up in, might bring it on perhaps, which, and this is the secret I was going to tell you, is another reason for your guardian's making the communication. He is so steady, precise, and exact, and he will talk Jack's thoughts into shape in no time, whereas with me Jack is always impulsive and hurried, and, I may say, almost womanish. Rosa seemed convinced. Perhaps from her own very different point of view of Jack, she felt comforted and protected by the interposition of Mr. Grugius between herself and him. And now Edwin Drood's right hand closed again upon the ring in its little case, and again was checked by the consideration, "'It is certain now that I am to give it back to him, then why should I tell her of it?' That pretty sympathetic nature which could be so sorry for him in the blight of their childish hopes of happiness together, and could so quietly find itself alone in a new world, to weave fresh wreaths of such flowers as it might prove to bear, the old world's flowers being withered, would be grieved by these sorrowful jewels. And to what purpose? Why should it be? They were but a sign of broken joys and baseless projects. In their very beauty they were, as the unlikeliest of men had said, almost a true satire on the loves, hopes, plans of humanity, which are able to forecast nothing, and are so little brittle dust. Let them be. He would restore them to her guardian when he came down. He in his turn would restore them to the cabinet from which he had unwillingly taken them, and there, like old letters or old vows, or other records of old aspirations come to nothing, they would be disregarded, until, being valuable, they were sold into circulation again, to repeat their former round. Let them be. Let them lie unspoken of in his breast. However distinctly or indistinctly he entertained these thoughts, he arrived at the conclusion, let them be. Among the mighty store of wonderful chains, that are for ever forging day and night in the vast ironworks of time and circumstance. There was one chain forged in the moment of that small conclusion, riveted to the foundations of heaven and earth, and gifted with invincible force to hold and drag. He walked on by the river. They began to speak of their separate plans. He would quicken his departure from England, and she would remain where she was, at least as long as Helena remained. The poor dear girls should have their disappointment broken to them gently, and, as the first preliminary, Miss Twinkleton should be confided in by Rosa, even in advance of the reappearance of Mr. Grugius. 
it should be made clear in all quarters that she and Edwin were the best of friends. There had never been so serene an understanding between them since they were first affianced, and yet there was one reservation on each side, on hers that she intended through her guardian to withdraw herself immediately from the tuition of her music-master, on his that he did already entertain some wandering speculations whether it might ever come to pass that he would know more of Miss Landless. The bright, frosty day declined as they walked and spoke together. The sun dipped in the river far behind them, and the old city lay red before them as their walk drew to a close. The moaning water cast its seaweed duskily at their feet when they turned to leave its margin, and the rooks hovered above them with hoarse cries, darker splashes in the evening air. "'I will prepare Jack for my flitting soon,' said Edward in a low voice, "'and I will but see your guardian when he comes, and then go before they speak together. It will be better done without my being by. Don't you think so?' "'Yes.' "'We know we have done right, Rosa.' "'Yes.' "'We know we are better so, even now.' "'And shall be far, far better so by and by.' Still there was that lingering tenderness in their hearts towards the old positions they were relinquishing, that they prolonged their parting. When they came among the elm-trees by the cathedral, where they had last sat together, they stopped as by consent, and Rosa raised her face to his, as she had never raised it in the old days, for they were old already. "'God bless you, dear. Good-bye.' "'God bless you, dear. Good-bye.' They kissed each other fervently. "'Now please take me home, Eddie, and let me be by myself.' "'Don't look round, Rosa,' he cautioned her, as he drew her arm through his and led her away. "'Didn't you see Jack?' "'No. Where?' "'Under the trees. He saw us as we took leave of each other.' Poor fellow, he little thinks we have parted. This will be a blow to him, I am much afraid. She hurried on without resting, and hurried on until they had passed under the gatehouse into the street. Once there, she asked, Has he followed us? You can look without seeming to. Is he behind? No. Yes, he is. He has just passed out under the gateway. The dear sympathetic old fellow likes to keep us in sight. I am afraid he will be bitterly disappointed. She pulled hurriedly at the handle of the hoarse old bell, and the gate soon opened. Before going in she gave him one last wide, wondering look, as if she would have asked him with imploring emphasis, Oh, don't you understand? And out of that look he vanished from her view. End of chapter 13 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England At Easter 2008